In this episode of Influencers, Rogue's author and staff writer at The New Yorker, Patrick Raiden Keefe. There are all kinds of ways in which if you are a, a, a bad actor, but a, a powerful and uh, resourceful bad actor, you can mitigate any real world impact in your life uh, for your own horrendous decisions. I mean, the level of sneakiness around very wealthy American clients hiding their money abroad is, is kind of staggering. From the first sentence, I want to just grab you by the lapels and pull you into the story, and I don't want any friction. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Patrick Raiden Keith, author of a number of award-winning books, including most recently Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks, a collection of his stories from The New Yorker, where he is a staff writer. Patrick, great to see you. It's great to be with you. So I want to ask you about a tweet that you put out uh, just a few days ago where you wrote, one of the small but cruel ironies of the pandemic is that the best businesses are often the ones that perish while the worst survive and thrive. I think you were talking about a popular Filipino restaurant, Bad Saint in Washington, D.C. Can, can you give us a little context about that? And, and is this a writ large situation or just one restaurant? Well, it's a thing that I noticed was that the, um, you know, the I live in Westchester County in, in New York, and um, it's something my family notices that a lot of the places that we love the most, little restaurants, little bookstores, were the ones that um, that didn't make it through for one reason or another. And then at a, at a local level, you had um, other places that you're kind of mystified, you know, maybe they have a sweet deal with a rent or, uh, or maybe they're just the kind of the equivalent of cockroaches uh, surviving a, uh, a terrible event. Um, but even on a, on a broader level, I mean, I feel as though the, there are certain economic trends um, that affect the way we live as consumers that were just exacerbated by the pandemic. So if you were somebody who liked brick and mortar stores, going to see a movie in a theater, buying a book at an independent bookstore, um, all of that feels increasingly in jeopardy to me. And what are your thoughts? I mean, I know you're not an economist, obviously, but just sort of taking that a step further on the current economic situation in America as we perhaps emerge from the pandemic. Oh, I wouldn't even be equipped to say. I mean, I feel as though it's a it's a, a nervous moment. Um, certainly for for me, for my family, for most people, I think it's a. Uh, and 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 the question of to what extent we are really breaking free of the pandemic, I think, is also it's very much an open question. I mean, I, I think it's I get the feeling that this is going to be a cyclical reality that we will all come to live with in the coming years. Let me ask you about your new book, Rogues, which, as I noted, is a collection of stories. There, there's a common thread there. They're rogues. They're they think very widely, though, from Tony Bourdain to you know, El Chapo. Um, so, so what really is the common denominator here, Patrick? So these are 12 stories that I've written uh, over the course of about a dozen years at The New Yorker. And it's a funny thing, I don't have a beat 
at the New Yorker. I part of what I like about the job is that I get to kind of plunge into a new world and a new story every four to six months, and I really immerse myself and then turn around a big piece of writing and then move on. And I don't have a particular subject that I keep coming back to. But in retrospect, when I was putting the collection together, I did realize that there are these certain themes that I keep returning to um, almost unconsciously. And in this case, it was uh, these individuals who have very forceful personalities, these strong personalities, people with a lot of charisma, a lot of creativity and dynamism, who often are perceiving weaknesses in the legal system or in the way in which we categorize legal and illegal activity and kind of shaping the world um, in small and large ways. And so you have, uh, you know, lovable examples of this, like Anthony Bourdain, who I traveled with and got to know. And in his case, it was really just somebody who kind of designed a fantasy life. He designed a job that didn't exist. He was a former chef. He'd struggled with addiction. He wrote a memoir and then had this incredible job where he got to travel around the world as kind of a, you know, a well-heeled beatnik and eat great food and meet fascinating people. And I wanted to just ride along with him and see what it was like to be somebody who invented a, a fantasy profession and then thrived in it to the degree that he did. And then on the other hand, you have people like Japo Guzman, who uh, I think we normally think of as a, you know, as just a criminal and a murderous criminal, and he certainly was those things, but I was interested in him as a businessman, as a guy who was effectively the CEO of a multi-billion dollar transnational commodities enterprise and managed to run this big, clandestine, illegal, global smuggling business for decades until he was caught. Yeah, have you ever thought about how closely related or not successful business people are to successful criminals. I think about it all the time. And it's actually a theme that sort of runs through this book is that a lot of these people are, uh, yeah, they're, they're sort of the underworld equivalent of successful business, business people. They're people who approach what they do as a business. Um, I, you know, one of the big stories that kind of set me off on this path, and it's not in this collection, there is a story about the hunt for Chapo Guzman in this collection. But the first time I wrote about the Sinaloa cartel was actually a cover story for the New York Times Magazine 10 years ago. And my pitch to them was I want to write a Harvard Business School case study of a Mexican drug cartel. Uh, you know, we think of them primarily as a criminal gang, but they think of themselves as this big commodities business. And how do they use violence? How do they use corruption? Um, you know, how do they account for bribery? Um, how do they invest their proceeds? How do they move them? What do you do when, when you can't resort to the courts in order to resolve disputes with uh, business rivals or partners? And all of those questions have always been really intriguing to me. And sort of on the flip side of that, Patrick, though, what about rogue behavior from business people. And, and I'm thinking, of course, about Elon Musk. And I wonder what you think about him. And if you considered writing about him, obviously, a lot of people have that's to the downside, but he is singular in some ways that some of your characters have been right. Yeah, well, it, as I said earlier, I mean, for me, it's about these forceful personalities, people who often have, um, have real insights into where the world is going, they can kind of see around the corner um, at at least one point in their career and maybe multiple points in their career. And then they're able to, to some degree, shape the world to their whim. So, I mean, I, yeah, Elon Musk, I mean, I haven't written about him 
Um, I, I'm a little sick of him, to be honest with you, because I feel as though we're all living inside his head to a degree that uh, that may not necessarily be welcome. But listen, you're, you're quite right. I mean, those types of people I'm really intrigued by as well. So people who are who are not necessarily what we would think of as criminals, but are engaging in behavior uh, that I think is is often suspect. So in my case, you know, I wrote a book about the Sackler family, Empire of Pain, but also in this collection. There's a big piece about uh, Stephen Cohen, who ran a hedge fund that was awash in insider trading. All kinds of people beneath Cohen uh, were busted for insider trading. And there was a big effort by Preet Bharara, who at the time was the uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, to get Cohen. He fails. But what my story is about is, is the one guy who they thought would flip on Cohen, and he doesn't. Um, and so there are other figures like that. I mean, there's a story in the collection about uh, Swiss banking at HSBC and the ways in which the Swiss bank of HSBC in Geneva was used by the wealthy all around the world to evade taxes. Right. You also write about uh, Mark Burnett, Burnett uh, and, you know, the reality TV show producer and um, write about how he may or may not be, or I think my takeaway from your take is in part responsible for Donald Trump's success, rebirth, and even presidency. Um, and so was that a way of getting at Donald Trump and writing about Donald Trump sort of in a tertiary way, or were you just interested in Burnett? No, I was interested in both of them. I mean, I think that the um, Burnett was kind of the guy behind the guy in a way that I, I'm, I'm often interested in. And... Um, I, I would, yeah, I would put a, a, a sharper point on the characteriz characterization you just made. I, my contention would be that without Mark Burnett, there is no Trump presidency. Um, I think at the point where Mark Burnett, who at the time was a very successful reality TV producer um, and had done Survivor, at the point where he dreams up The Apprentice and casts Trump, Trump is washed up. He's, he's kind of a punchline in the New York tabloids. Nobody takes him seriously. He'd been through I don't know how many bankruptcies. He kind of has cameos in movies, um, but he's a punchline. And Burnett kind of reinvents him as this titan of industry, this guy who, you know, everything he touches turns to gold. And I interviewed all these producers on the show who said, oh, we knew at the time that this was kind of a con. Like some of them say they, they actually thought of it as humorous, that there was like a wink with the show and that the consumer would get it. But of course, that's not what happened. And so there's a line in the show, one of the producers from The Apprentice said, you know, it was like we took, took the court jester and made him the king. I think in an interview recently, you said you were going to write uh, about Jared Kushner, but then decided not to. Why was that, Patrick? So I had I had written a number of pieces about the Trump administration. I wrote a big story about Carl Icahn and his relationship with Trump. And actually, that story ended up, um, you know, it was just as that was getting published, uh, Icahn was kind of ousted from his role as an advisor uh, to the administration. Um, I wrote a story about Trump's National Security Council and H.R. McMaster, his tenure as Trump's National Security Advisor. Um, but as I started working on that Kushner piece, I came to feel that there was something a little unholy going on with the press in the sense that Trump was great for business, right? One of the one of the points in the Mark Burnett article that's in the book is that Burnett had this intuition 
which I think is is kind of terrible, but also brilliant in its way, which is that politics in the end is just entertainment by other means, right? For him, it's all entertainment. And I think we're all kind of living with the consequences of that decision now, um, you know, of that view of the world. What I worried about myself was just that there had been a lot of Trump coverage in The New Yorker and elsewhere. Um, it was a great way to get eyeballs, get people reading. A lot of people, whether they like Trump or they hate him, there was a kind of obsessive tendency to just consume material about the guy. And I just wasn't sure that I, that I could get the proportion of light and heat right. I didn't know how much value I would be adding. I thought that if I wrote a big piece about the corruption of the Kushners, um, I would probably explain uh, you know, a great deal that should be shocking and should upset people. I wasn't sure that I would actually change anything. And then it just becomes outrage porn, right? Then there's a danger, I think, that you're just kind of feeding the outrage that people already read and uh, or already feel. And um, I, just, I just wasn't sure that I would, I would be adding enough value. It's sort of adjacent to the ethical questions that journalists face in, say, in a war zone where someone points a gun at someone's head and said, if you don't write about this, I'm going to shoot this person or something, right? I mean, it's, it's like at some point we're not just, you have to consider the, the publicity or the exposure aspects of what you do, correct? Is that sort of along those lines? I think that's right. But I also think that the, you know, traditionally part of the role of journalism was that there was a sort of, um, you know, that there was a kind of accountability with that came with you put a spotlight on somebody who's done bad things. And society sees it and is properly outraged. And ideally, something comes of it. So, you know, you can draw a direct line from Woodward and Bernstein to Watergate and everything and the unraveling of the Nixon presidency. And there's a kind of um, causality there. And that broke down at a certain point, I think, in that you had a huge amount of coverage of pretty flagrant corruption um, in the in the Trump administration that didn't necessarily lead to change. I think, frankly, for me, we're seeing it right now with the January 6 hearings. If you have eyes in your head and you are watching those hearings, it's pretty shocking what's coming out. And, and in a normal in a normal moment in this country's history, that would, as night follows day, lead to real legal repercussions. It's an open question in my mind about whether it will. And so I think that's the challenge for journalism, right? Is that, is that normally what happens is you go out, you expose wrongdoing, and then your job is kind of done and society takes it from there, whether it's the criminal justice system or the political system or what have you. Now, like we can do our part of the equation, but I think often, you know, you, you feel like you're howling in the wind. Of course, the follow-up question then is, why is that the case, Patrick? I mean, I think there's a, there's been a general breakdown in accountability across the board. I think this this was true prior to the Trump administration. I think as you get a, a greater and greater uh, consolidation of power and wealth by the super elite in this country. There are all kinds of ways in which if you are a, a, a bad actor, but a, a powerful and uh, resourceful bad actor, you can mitigate any real world impact in your life uh, for your own horrendous decisions. I mean, I wrote a book about the Sackler family, and I would say that's a pretty good illustration of that. I think we see that inside the political system as well. Yeah, I want to ask you about Empire of Pain, because that's just a tremendous book. Um, but before I do that, you're, you're staring at infinity in a way, Patrick, in terms of subject matter. 
And so uh, there, you know, there's Carl Icahn, there's Mark Burnett, there's, you know, drug dealers, um, both legal and illegal. Um, how do you pick your subjects and how do you decide what to write about? You know, I don't have a great answer for this because I think a lot of the time I just sort of follow my interests. I will say that I'm interested in in stories that you can tell as stories. I I, I tend not to pick an issue uh, that I want to look at from 30,000 feet. I, I pick a story about characters. I think for most of us, we're hardwired, I think, from you know our, our earliest memories of lying with a parent, you know, having them read us a story as we fall asleep. Um, I think we're hardwired to process complex information better when it is presented to us in the form of a narrative. And so for me, what that means is um, whether it's Swiss banking or uh, the hedge fund, you know, insider trading at hedge funds or the ins and outs of drug dealing by Mexican cartels or arms trafficking, um, I want to find a, a frame, a kind of narrative frame that I can use to tell that story. And so I'm often looking for outsized characters and kind of twists and turns in the story so that you feel it has the same narrative satisfactions that reading a novel would. Of course, everything is entirely factual. It's scrupulously fact-checked uh, at The New Yorker, but I do think that there are ways of relating this kind of information that, um, that hopefully can kind of seduce the reader to engage with complex and thorny issues that they might be disinclined to if it was a story on, you know, uh, the, the front page of the business section. So turning our attention to Empire of Pain and the Sackler family, which, of course, to this day controls Purdue Pharmaceutical, which is the company that Purdue no, no longer. No, it's it, what happened was that in the bankruptcy, yeah. Purdue, Pharma, Purdue Pharma got wound down and the family gave up their interest in the, in right. the pharmaceutical business. Well, thank you for that clarification, correction, I should say. Um, for years, uh, th this is the company they founded. It was a family-run business for decades um, and produced OxyContin and OxyCodone. Um, and, you know, the extent to which they were able to compromise America's greatest institutions from the Justice Department, the FDA, our, the great museums of this country, the great um, uh, uh, institutions of higher learning, um, the New York Times, perhaps one could argue, um, even. It's, it's just stunning. And I was thinking about the Sackler family, the three generations, and it, has there been any family or even individuals that kind of approach this level of, gosh, you know, just relentless, I don't know if it's wrongdoing, but just working the system to their advantage? Oh, I'm sure there have. Yeah. I mean, I think part of what was what was intriguing to me about this story is its Americanness, that on some level, it's a story of the American dream and where it can go. And uh, in this case, you had the accumulation of tremendous wealth over three generations and the sort of refinement of the tools of influence over generations. But really, it starts, you know, as you say, it starts with these three brothers, Arthur, Mortimer and Raymond. And I should say, I mean, when when the U.S. Senate was investigating Arthur Sackler, he gets Clark Clifford to be his lawyer. Um, you know, he's got the best firms. He's got the best people working for him. He's got connections all over the place. He's friends with the mayor of New York City. Uh, he, you know, has a has a, a wing at the Met named after him. Um, so even in the first 
first generation, I think they had gotten very, very good at figuring out ways to leverage their own money and social standing to, again, kind of shape the world in the way in which they wanted it to be shaped, to allow themselves to do the things they wanted to do, and to uh, insulate themselves from scrutiny and certainly from accountability. Are, are the bad guys just getting worse? I mean, I'm thinking about the Sacklers. I think about Bernie Madoff. I think about Jeffrey Epstein. So two-part question, are they getting worse? And secondly, wow, Jeffrey Epstein, isn't that the great untold story of our time still? Yeah, there's so much about the Epstein story that's still not known. Um, absolutely. And I think as to whether or not they're getting worse, I, I think that they have better and better resources that they can rely on. And I think increasingly, particularly if they're white collar bad guys, I think that there's just, I think we as a society have given a pass to, uh, to elite bad actors, people who went to the right schools and made the right connections and are, you know, photographed with, uh, with notable political and business figures. Um, I think there's a sense, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein or Harvey Weinstein or the Sacklers, that if you surround yourself with the right people and the right blue chip institutional affiliations over the decades, um, it's possible to do a great deal of wrong without it catching up with you. For me, what I, I really struggle with is that I, I trained as a lawyer. I never practiced, uh, but I went to law school, took the New York bar. My wife's a lawyer. A lot of my friends are lawyers. And I think that in any of those instances, if you're trying to reconstruct, I think particularly with, with um, Epstein and Weinstein, people say in retrospect, well, how did they get away with it for so long? How could they have gotten away with it? The answer is they're surrounded by... Uh, high-end, extremely capable, mercenary, white shoe service providers who should really know better. And that could be law firms. It could be McKinsey, as was the case with the opioid crisis. Um, you have these, these players who, in some ways, they sort of avoid the moral taint themselves because there's, sense that, there's a sense that they're just these kind of neutral service providers that you would bring in. Um, but to me, they are entirely morally culpable if over decades they abet uh, and, pr and protect this kind of behavior. Have you ever thought about writing about that layer writ large, the enablers, just generally speaking? Yeah, I have. I mean, it's interesting. I want to I want to find the right one. But the but certainly in my Sackler book, I mean, the first person you meet is Mary Jo White uh, from Devil Boys and Plimpton who has been right there with the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma going back, going back to the first time their company pled guilty to federal criminal charges uh, back in 2006, 2007, um, and, and still standing by the family and, and doing everything she can to help them. So, yeah, I mean, I've tried to put a spotlight on those people. Um, there's a big book coming out in the fall, not by me, uh, about McKinsey, a terrific investigative book by two reporters at The New York Times. I think that there should be more of this kind of work. It's complicated, though. I mean, take Debevoise Plimpton just for an example. I mean, it's not like the whole thing is rotten to the core necessarily. But on the other hand, parts of it or people there engage in behavior that sort of becomes, you know, gradually or suddenly not so ethical. Right. And but they're, here they are recruit, recruiting at the best law firms, donating to all the uh, great NGOs and charities, you know, just intertwined in our society at the highest levels, right? 
Yeah, that's right. And I should say, um, uh, just in the interest of um, of giving them their say, there are some people whose point of view is essentially, listen, if you sign up to be a lawyer, it's an adversarial uh, profession. The nature of the business is that everybody deserves a lawyer. And so we are not going to we're not going to make any judgments about your own ethics just because you take a client who might be a scoundrel. And I think there's certainly an argument to be made for that. But there's a quote that I have in the book from somebody who's a, a lawyer uh, who says, that, you know, one of her, her law firm or her law school professors told her, you know, everybody deserves a lawyer, but that doesn't mean it has to be you. And for a firm like Debevoise, I think you get into this kind of interesting situation where it has long been the case that there are all kinds of law firms that said at a certain point, you know, we won't take tobacco work. And part of the reason they did it is that they were going to go to the campuses of elite law schools and try and recruit the best people to come in and work as associates. And some of those associates said, I don't want to be associated with a firm that does that kind of work. So there are areas um, which could be perfectly good, viable business that some of the big law firms say, you know what, we're just not going to touch it. McKinsey now recently has come out and said, we're, we're done with the opioid business. You know, after, after all of the wreckage that's been done and all of the billing that they've done, they said, oh, you know what, we're, we're finished with the opioid business. We're going to wash our hands of that. And I would imagine part of that is because they're, they're mindful of the fact that they're going out to campuses trying to recruit the best new talent and people may have issues with that kind of legacy. So I, I think these should be fraught issues for the big firms. Um, and I hope that the younger people at these big firms press this question of, in a world in which, you know, if you're Debbie Boys and Plimpton, you can get any business you, you've got a lot of business uh, going for you. You don't have to take on clients like that. And yet they do. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and that's why we need people like yourself out there telling these stories to hold these people and these companies and firms accountable. You know, one area that I think might be really rich for you to explore, Patrick, and, and I'm sure you've thought of this a million times and you've touched on it, is all the hidden money overseas by wealthy Americans. I mean, that seems to be this huge, untapped, very difficult subject. Isn't that just out there? Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I, you know, there's this big story about Swiss banking in rogues. And then more recently, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker about the Russian oligarchs in London and the, the kind of sophistication of the whole industry of financial dissimulation, basically, whether it's uh, you know, tax avoidance or the way in which things are, are, are structured such that nobody can put their hands on the money is really interesting. And it is sort of a theme that keeps coming up in my work because in the case of the Sacklers, um, you know, prior to Purdue Pharma declaring bankruptcy, the Sacklers had taken $10 billion out of the company and there's all kinds of interesting court papers where they basically acknowledge that that money is it's kind of beyond our reach at this point. We don't know where it is. We don't even know how to find it. Um, and it would be very difficult to develop an accurate picture of how much money there is and and where it's hiding. And in the Swiss bank story that I have, which is actually about a guy who worked at HSBC in Geneva who stole a huge amount of private client data and started sharing it with governments in Europe and saying, hey, look, Here's all the info on the wealthy people in France or Spain or Greece who've been hiding their money in Switzerland and not paying taxes. You get these crazy stories in that about the way in which um, you'd have these Swiss bankers come to places like New York City or Miami, and there was never any mail, uh, never any paper trail. They would meet in person with their clients. They'd sit on park benches. They wouldn't do phone calls. I mean, the level of sneakiness around 
very wealthy American clients hiding their money abroad is is kind of staggering. And speaking of stealing uh, uh, data, uh, your most recent story in The New Yorker is about the, a CIA uh, leaker uh, who was just uh, found guilty, convicted in a New York court, uh, Joshua Schulte. And it sort of struck me that uh, looking at your those collection of rogues, and I read a lot of those stories before in The New Yorker, that they have these uh, great italicized postscripts, which are almost as good as the stories themselves. In other words, you wrote the story a few years ago, and then, of course, it keeps going. Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is one of the one of the frustrating things for me is that the well, listen, I'm very lucky to, to write for The New Yorker and they they give me the time and the resources to take a big swing at a story. So often these stories will take six, eight, nine months for me to do. But of course, if I'm going to spend the better part of a year working on a magazine article and you're going to spend the better part of an hour reading it, I want it to be the definitive be all and end all version of the story. And the trick there is, you know, life keeps happening, right? That you finish a story and, and uh, it continues to unfold, often in really confounding ways. And so you're quite right. I mean, I wrote this story about Joshua Schulte, this, this guy who, uh, who I would, until today, I, could, I would have said allegedly leaked, but let's say leaked because he's now been convicted. Uh, the, the biggest, it was basically the biggest data theft in CIA history. And he did it not out of some principled uh, um, objection to CIA policy or what the U.S. was doing abroad, but because he was angry with his colleagues. It's basically kind of a workplace comedy where he had, he had fought with his colleagues and he was so angry. He had a, a nickname in the office. They called him the nuclear option because he tended to overreact. And this was like the ultimate overreaction. Um, he was retried for that and just convicted yesterday. And there are a series of these postscripts in the book where um, the story ended where it ended and then often took these kind of interesting twists and turns. Um, yeah, I mean, most dramatically, I spent a year hanging out with Anthony Bourdain and published this big piece about him. And a, and a year after it came out, he killed himself. Yeah. Um, Say Nothing, which we haven't even talked about, an amazing book about Northern Ireland, the Troubles, and this great narrative. You're working on uh, turning that into a, a TV series. Is that right? Yeah, um, with FX. Um, a 10 part dramatic series and uh, it's in the works, but, but I'm working with great people and I'm involved as a, as a producer on it and um, have very high hopes. You told me uh, a little while ago that when you were working on this book about the um, smuggling uh, Chinese citizens in the United States, you took a look back at that book and wished you had made it a little bit shorter. Do you, when, as you evolve as a writer, is that, a, is that an issue that you go back and you go, oh, I wish I'd done this with a story? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think the, I, I generally look back at that book and feel pretty good about it. I think I would have, um, I would have shortened it here and there. I definitely would have shortened the chapters in it. Um, as I get older, I, you know, I, I think a lot about the attention span of the reader. And I think that, um I don't ever take the reader's attention for granted. And so for me, the idea is from the first sentence, I want to just grab you by the lapels and pull you into the story. And I don't want any friction. Um, and I don't want the moment where you're kind of drumming your fingers on the, on the table and, and flipping ahead to get to the good part. Um, and so that is something that I, I, I obsess about in writing these stories. And there probably are ways in which 
if I could go back and revisit work I did 10 or 15 years ago, I might tweak it here and there uh, to that end. And finally, Patrick, what do you look to do going forward? Are you just going to continue what you're doing? Do you have a master plan for the next three decades? Um, how are you looking out ahead in terms of your work? I don't have much of a master plan. I mean, I, I you know, the my, my real governing emotion is a, a fear of boredom. Um, and I've tried to design a life in which I'm, I'm always engaged and interested and, and love what I'm doing every hour, every day. And so to the degree that I can, I can continue to do the work that I love and, and do it in a way that's serious and rigorous and that finds an audience, uh, that's what I want to keep doing. So I will, I'm going to continue writing for the New Yorker. I'm back at the magazine now having, you know, done a book leave and, um, we'll keep doing books. And I did a, a podcast in there somewhere called wind of change and had a blast doing that. And that was a, you know, it was a, it was a big podcast all around the world and, and, uh, found a really big audience. And that was satisfying because it's a different, different kind of person and they're relating to it in a different sort of way, uh, than with the books and the magazine articles. So I, want to do another podcast. So more of the same, I think, is the, the short answer. And I bet we'll be the better for it. Patrick Graydon Keith, New Yorker, writer and author of the new book, Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels and Crooks. Thank you so much for your time. It was great to be with you. Thank you. This is Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surwer.